everyone. Welcome to the Equity Expert Podcast. I am Jen Namazi, the Content Director for the NASPP, and we are kicking off 2022 with new episodes of the podcast. I am joined today by by our Executive Director, Barbara Boxcha, and it's a brand new year, and we figured this would be a great opportunity to inject some fun and some different formats into the podcast. So today's episode is going to be a dive into a half empty slash half full view on some of the current equity compensation happenings. But before we get to that, I just want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to the podcast on our NASPP website, naspp.com. You will get email notifications about new episodes, or you can also go to your podcast app, wherever you're streaming the podcast on your mobile or computer devices, and you can also follow the podcast there and be notified about new episodes as well. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a review that will give us great feedback and also help us keep growing and creating more content for you, our audience. So with that, Let's get back to today's episode, and I'm going to ask you, Barb, first of all, welcome. I know you're frequently on the podcast, but officially welcome you today. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right, and I'm going to kind of kick this to you to explain the format for today, because this was your brainchild, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun, but I want to just kind of ask you to explain what's half empty, half full, and how are we going to proceed today? Uh, Sure, I am happy to explain it. Uh, this is an idea that I got from a podcast that I listen to by Marketplace called Make Me Smart. And this is a segment that they do regularly called Half Empty, Half Full, where one of the producers of the show will bring up four, uh, four topics. And then the co-hosts will each comment on whether they think that topic, each topic is a good idea or a bad idea. So a good idea would mean that they're half full on it. So they're optimistic about that development or that idea. Uh, and half empty would mean that they're pessimistic about it or they're, they they just don't think it's a good idea. And it's a fun segment. It goes by really rapidly. It's interesting to hear their opinions. And I thought, wow, we could do the same thing with our podcast, but we could be focused on equity compensation topics. There's enough going on in this industry that I think we could, could easily do a segment like this. And uh, so I suggested it to you, Jen, and you thought it was a good idea. And we're going to try it out today and see how it goes. Yeah, and I I love this idea because I feel like there's a lot that goes on in equity compensation and some of it can just be very technical, like interpreting new rules or figuring out a new requirement or what's going on. And we don't often get the opinion part of it where it's like, how do we really feel about this? Or what's our gut telling us, you know, about this? So I like this added perspective on it. And I think this will be a great uh, conversation today. So I'm going to kick it off and start by asking you, Barb, how you feel about proposed EDGAR changes. So the SEC has pr- proposed some changes to EDGAR. Can you walk us through what they are briefly and how you feel about them? Okay, Jen. So let me first off start by saying that I am half empty on these proposed EDGAR access changes. Uh, and now let me just summarize what the changes are. Uh, So the SEC is proposing to add in multi-factor authentication uh, when you access the EDGAR system. What that means is that anyone who's logging into EDGAR will have to go through a two-step process. They'll have to enter their user ID and password, uh, and then they'll also have to 
uh, go through a second a second step, which I believe is that the SEC will send you a text message, and then you have to either click the link in the text message or enter the code from the text message in order to get into Edgar. And to you, you know, most of you are already probably familiar with the idea of two-step authentication. It's used a lot. It's considered sort of the gold standard uh, in terms of uh, security. And uh, and the reason why the SEC is doing this is because there have been a number of um, fake Edgar filings over the years. In fact, enough fake Edgar filings that the SEC feels like they need to have some additional security around Edgar. And I think one of the positive parts of this is that uh, right now, in order to access Edgar, you have like, I can't even remember now, five or six different access codes. You've got your CIK, your CCC, you've got a password, you've got a password modification code, uh, you've got a passphrase. I feel like there's something else in there. Uh, and so you no longer will have these like crazy five or six different basically passwords in order to get into Edgar. You'll just have a CIK and a CCC and then maybe a password. Uh, but, I, but I still am half empty on these changes. And the reason why I'm half empty is that I think in the context of section 16 filings, this is going to make things a little bit more difficult, especially getting access to the system for your new insiders. The first thing that I think is going to be difficult is some of you right now are when you submit filings for your ed, for your insiders, you log in as them. You use their CIK and their password to get into Edgar and then submit their filings. And you won't be able to do that anymore because you would have to have access to their cell phone in order to respond to that text message in order to get into Edgar. So it means everyone who submits filings for Section 16 insiders will need to have their own Edgar access. You'll need to apply for access using Form ID. So Form ID is not going away and it's still gonna be, it's still gonna require a notary. So you will need to go through the process of submitting Form ID, getting it notarized, getting access to the Edgar system uh, in order to submit filings for your insiders. Uh, and uh, the second uh, problem here, I think, that, uh, that I think is gonna really be a challenge in the context of section 16 is for the, in, for the new insiders, I, well, I guess two more things that I think are gonna be a problem. The first is that it adds as an additional step to the process of getting a new insider access to the system. So if you have say a new CEO and he doesn't have access to, he's never been a, an executive before, he's never had to do section 16 filing. So you need to submit a form ID from him and get him access to the system. We all know right now that oftentimes that when someone becomes an insider, they're granted an equity award and you have to submit their first filing within two days, but it can take the SEC three or four days to process the form ID, making it impossible for that first filing to be timely. And this is gonna add another layer into that because not only do you have to do the form ID and get it notarized and get it over to the SEC and get them to uh, do whatever they have to do on their end to grant access to the system, but now the SEC is going to actually outsource this two-step authentication to a third party. So now you will also have to apply with that third party to get the two-step authentication for the insiders. And they have to go through some process to verify that the insider is actually who they say they are. So I think it is going to um, lengthen the time it takes for someone to get access to uh, the Edgar system to submit filings. For, for new insiders and in the context of section 16, when filings are due in just two business days, uh, that is that can really be a problem. You, you do have, you do still have 10 days to file the form three, 
but oftentimes when you have new insiders, they have transactions that need to be reported right away on a form four. So that I think is, is, a, is a problem that the SEC, I don't think has addressed. And they've been really unsympathetic about the current issues with the time it takes to get a form ID processed. And, uh, and so I don't expect them to be any more sympathetic in this context, which is frustrating. I feel like the SEC has created a system that doesn't work and then is blaming the end users for the fact that it doesn't work. Uh, when it's really their system and they created it and they could fix it. But uh, so, so that, and then the last issue that I have with this or where I think it's gonna really be problematic in the context of section 16 is when you have insiders who already have CIK and CCC numbers. Uh, right now, if you, let's say you get a new board of directors, new member of your board of directors, and let's say that she is an executive at another company, so she already submits Section 16 filings. She already has a CIK and a CCC number. In order to submit filings for her as one of your board members, all you need to do is find out her CIK and CCC number, and then you can go ahead and submit filings. That's not going to be possible anymore. Now, in going forward, in order to submit filings for an insider, you will need to be an authorized filer on their account or an authorized user on her Section 16, on her Edgar account. And uh, so to do that, you will need to contact the company who is already submitting filings for her and has access to her Edgar account and have them grant you access as an authorized filer so that you can submit filings on her behalf as since she's now on your board. So uh, that I think also adds a challenge in there uh, that, you, that you didn't have before. Uh, it does mean that we're all gonna have to be nice to each other. And when people contact you for, because your Section 16 insiders are serving on their boards and they need access to the, the account, you're going to need to be responsive to them in the hopes that when you are reaching out to other people for your board members, that they will be responsive to you. But uh, that does, I think, add an extra wrinkle in to, the, uh, to your process for setting up Section 16 filings for your insiders. So given all of that, I understand why the SEC is making this change and fake editor filings are a real problem that can, uh, in some cases, make cause people to make investment decisions based on information that is just patently false. Uh, I, you know, I blogged, I think, a couple times about some of these fake editor filings, and they are very serious, and the SEC does need to do something to address it. But I do think that these changes here with, that they're making for Edgar Access are really going to be problematic in the context of Section 16. I, yeah, I have. I say I have to agree with you on this. This just seems to me like something that sounds really good on paper. <laughs> well, maybe it doesn't even sound really good on paper, but I I get where like you know added security and two step verification is very commonplace now for security purposes and seems to. I'm, I'm not a technical expert in security, but I can see the value of why um, why these processes exist. But when it comes to Edgar and all of the complexities, to, to your point of like tracking down the insiders and their authorized accounts and getting access, it just screams like something that sounded good when it was, you know, in incubation as an idea, but really in reality, it doesn't seem like it's going to play out well. So hopefully, hopefully, I mean, these are proposed changes. Uh, I don't know if there will be any adjustments. Uh, well, I but- think... I think you have to remember that the primary purpose of the Edgar system is for company filings, like 10Ks and 10Qs right. and 8Ks. And for those filings, this process makes a lot of sense. And that is really where the fake filings are mostly a problem is 
individuals filing sort of fake 8K statements, making announcements that they're like acquiring another company that they're not actually acquiring and they don't have any actual authority to acquire. And, uh, you know, just there, there have been some really crazy fake filings. And, uh, and so in the context of those filings, which are, you know, you have a lot of lead time. If you're filing a 10K, uh, you've got a fair amount of lead time to, to prepare for that. And, uh, you know, it's unlikely that an 8K is the first filing that you make for a company, I guess, unless you're a SPAC. But even there, you still got a lot of lead time. You know that 8K is coming. And, uh, and so I just, I just think in the context of the filings that Edgar was originally designed to accommodate, this process does make sense and would and will probably work, but unless the SEC is going to carve out some sort of special process to make things happen faster for Section 16 insiders, uh, it, it really is a problematic is problematic for these Section 16 filings. And and I think the SEC oftentimes just doesn't think about that. Like the Section 16 filings are just a small part of what Edgar is used for. That I think the SEC just isn't focused on it and doesn't doesn't really think through how this is gonna impact this filings. They did do a beta program. Uh, I think the beta program is still in, in progress actually. And maybe they'll figure out that they need to make things a little bit easier for section 16 filers as part of the beta. I don't know, but I, I, I have to admit I'm half empty on this and I'm half empty on the idea that, that anything's gonna change. And based, based on how unsympathetic the SEC has been to comments about the current form ID process for insiders, I just, I just don't think that I think we're going to be stuck with it and we're just going to have to figure out how to make it work. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. All right. Well, that was our first topic. That probably went uh, longer than it normally does in the Make Me Smart show. So, uh, but, uh, but we'll see if we can speed it up with these other topics. All right. So your first topic that I have for you, Jen, is the current state of stock plan education and communication. What Are, are you half empty or half full on what companies are doing to educate them, their stock plan participants? So this is an interesting one because I am usually very half full on the idea of communicating with employees and practices around that and just all of the nuances of it. It excites me. It's something I think that companies have grown in over the years and continue to have some innovative practices around. So usually I'm very half full on anything communication related. However, I do feel we are in a state of communication fatigue. Uh, we're two years into a pandemic where a lot of employees are still at home or working remotely, um, some of them now permanently. I think we've had a big shift, as everybody is probably well aware, towards uh, more remote work. So I think along with that has come a lot of communication, uh, not just stock plan related, but just from companies, from the management, from managers to employees around a lot of different things. But I think overall, the arch overarching theme there is communication fatigue. And as someone who's sort of a student of communication, I feel that the more I learn about what's going on in general, where it's just, there's so much information, it's like the glazed over look is going across employee faces. You know, they're getting more emails than ever before. They're on their computers more than ever before and just kind of taking in any kind of information has almost turned into like a backfire situation when it comes to communications, because I think, you know, historically it was like, communicate more, educate more, give them more information, teach them more. And as we've struggled to get a lot of information out and communicate about just work in general, I think some of these things are becoming saturated and I think it's affecting 
I think it's affecting employees and their attitudes and their connection to their work, but also translating that to stock plans, their connection to their stock plans. So I would love to see in 2022 some data on how the actual perceived value of equity plans is resonating or what, what's going on there with perceived value. Because I think that with all this abundance or overabundance of information, I just wonder if they're really connecting the dots on the true value of, of their equity awards and some of the key points surrounding those. Um, one thing that's really stuck out to me, so we did an interview with Oftab Ibrahim of T-Mobile a few episodes back on the podcast. And one of the things that he mentioned, which I really took away from that at the time, which it's a great listen, if anybody wants to go back and listen to that episode, uh, he talked about uh, communicating just enough information. And I've seen that emerging as a theme on a lot of communication blogs and so forth. It's like communicating just the right amount of information. So not over communicating, not under communicating, but really starting to ask good questions around you know, is this information that the employee can get from somewhere else? Do they need it in this email? Do they need it in this video? Um, really focusing on hitting maybe the most key, um, key points and critical pieces of information and then putting everything else in other places where they could digest it at their leisure. So that's all my long-winded way of saying I'm kind of half empty on the state of communication in general um, and the way it translates to stock plans right now. But I'm optimistic that in the coming year, hopefully uh, there will be a shift towards really just focusing on critically important information and then really trying to measure up how that's translating to perceived value in our equity plans. Yeah, I think this is an interesting topic to talk about right now because in our Equity Compensation Outlook Program, which is a collaboration with Fidelity Investments, uh, we, we did four pulse surveys last year and the last pulse survey was on participant education. And one thing we found in that survey was that companies rely really heavily on email. When we talked about, when we asked companies sort of what other sort of mediums or channels you, that they use to educate their employees, very few used anything other than email. And, and then when we asked them sort of, well, what are you doing with your emails to make them readable? Uh, very few were doing some of the things that we recommend, like only 18% used images in their emails, only 16% uh, employ the listicle format that Oftop likes to use for the T-Mobile emails. Uh, and only, shockingly, only 4% use a subject line tester. And that is, that's the easiest thing that you could do to make your emails more effective is Google subject line tester. There's a couple out there that I really like. And, uh, and just, you know, it takes, you know, not even 10 seconds to run your email subject line through one of these testers and get some feedback of, you know, is it a good subject line that will make people open your emails or is it a bad subject line where people are just going to ignore your email and move on to the next one? It's the easiest thing to do. And yet only 4% of respondents to our survey were doing it. So I feel like, uh, I feel like I, I would really like to see companies start branching out beyond email. Uh, I feel like, you know, like you said, emails, your employee email boxes are full. They're very crowded spaces right now. And you are facing a lot of competition in that inbox to get your emails read. And so branching out to, you know, if your company uses internal collaboration tools or, uh, you know, a company blog or just, you know, any, any other way that you can reach out to people, I think is going to be 
is going to help your communication effort. And we did see that in the results of the survey. The, the respondents that did use different channels did report that their participants had a better understanding of their equity. Yeah, I and I think that concept of just different channels and branching out is no longer like a, oh, we should possibly consider that. It's really like, you really need to be doing this. It's There's so many factors and we can probably do a whole nother podcast on just employee communication practices and best practices. But yes, I think ultimately um, to be half full in 2022, we really want to focus on um, you know, getting information out there in a way that's going to be useful to employees in a way they can connect with when they're really struggling to connect at all with information. All right, so let's shift to another topic. Um, so Barb, I'm gonna ask you, so there's been a lot of talk about ESG or environmental, social and governance metrics or goals. Um, over the last year plus, really, but we, we hear a lot of buzz about ESG. And I want to know, how are you feeling about ESG goals in long-term incentive programs? So, so I, uh, I actually, I wanted to do this topic. I think it's a fun one to do. And I, uh, I wanted to do it because it actually came up in the Make Me Smart podcast. Uh, they, uh, that was one of the things that the producers brought to the co-host is should executives be compensated for meeting ESG targets? And interestingly, in the Make Me Spark podcast, they were really down on this idea. They were, I, I think, I know they were at least half empty. They might have been like all the way empty on it. They really hated the idea. And the reason why they hated it is they felt like these are things that executives should be doing anyway. And that they shouldn't have to be compensated for doing it. And I understand that perspective, but I got to say, I disagree with the co-host of the Making Smart podcast. I am, I'm half full on this idea. And the reason why I'm half full on it is I think that executives have so much of their compensation tied to financial metrics for the company, either tied to the company's stock price in the form of total shareholder return or tied to other financial metrics for the company. And uh, oftentimes the easiest way to raise the stock price or hit those financial metrics is not going to include doing things that are considered good governance or good social or environmental uh, practices. And so I think that if if all of your compensation for your executives is focused on financial metrics and making the company grow and growing the stock price, the executives are going to take the shortest path to reach that goal. And unless you add in some ESG metrics that uh, sort of temper that, uh, I, you know, maybe even just some modifiers on if they, if they hit the goals, but they haven't met these ESG metrics, I just don't think executives are going to focus on them. I think that the, the things that you tie compensation to for your executives sends them a very strong message uh, on what the board wants them to be focused on and what investors want them to be focused on. And if that message does not include ESG goals, I don't think that they're going to focus on ESG goals. I think that the only way we're going to make any traction on ESG goals is if it becomes something that executives are compensated on and that they don't get paid as much if they don't meet these goals. So. So yeah, so I'm half full on ESG. No one's doing it. I'll admit, as uh, we had a uh, again in our equity compensation outlook program, again a collaboration with Fidelity Investments. Uh, our second pulse survey was on performance goals, and I think uh, I think it was 
at less than 3% of companies were actually using ESG metrics in their equity awards. So I'll admit nobody's doing it right now, but I'm half full on the idea. And I think I hear a lot about it. I feel like there's a lot of interest in it, but it does kind of. There was back. a lot of, there was a lot of interest in it. In our survey, I want to say that like maybe 30% of companies were, were thinking about it. So there was, you know, that's still, that's still less than a third. Um, but uh, so, so uh, but there, but there was a lot more interest in it than companies that were actually doing it. So there is, the, yeah, you hear a lot about it. There's a lot of talk about, it. we had a, uh, we had a webcast. It was December a year ago on sort of rethinking next year's compensation. And uh, we had uh, someone from CalPERS and he really, you know, he thought that companies, that ESG goals should really be part of long-term incentives. One of his points was that that a lot of these ESG goals, right now, if companies are, have ESG goals, they're almost always part of short-term incentives and not part of long-term incentives. But his point was that a lot of ESG, these are long-term projects like you know making making progress on environmental goals or social goals are oftentimes things that have to happen over uh, years or decades and so they do often make more sense as a long-term incentive goal versus a short-term incentive goal so yeah so there's a lot of talk about it but but not very many companies are doing it right now but but maybe that will change yeah, I'm op- I'm optimistic on this one as well. I do think, in principle, um, incorporating those goals, like you said, I think it is something that's really important. And you know, there's so many layers to this. It's not just getting executives to really focus on these aspects. But I I'm wondering if, from a recruiting perspective, employers are going to start to see more demand from that angle of things. Because one of the things that I've been hearing, especially in the younger generations that are really rising up through the workforce is that they evaluate companies based on these factors, whether or not they're organized into specific factors that the company has put out there in terms of goals, but they're looking at companies and saying, how are they doing on environmental factors? How are they doing on some of these social issues? How are they doing on governance? So whether or not this has really you know, organized itself, I'm wondering if you know, some of that recruiting and, and bringing um, new talent into the workforce and, and company hiring process will begin to drive it from another angle besides just the kind of corporate comp- like executive compensation angle as well. All right, well, uh, we're on to our last topic for today, yes. which is the SEC's proposed changes to rule 10B51. I know this is a topic that you've blogged about a lot over the past year. So I'm going to ask you, Jen, are you where are you half full or half empty on where the SEC ended up on these proposed rules? All right, I am half full. So I I think Rule 10B51, and for those that don't know what that is, that is it's an SEC SEC rule that governs insiders and their trading plans. And an insider creates a 10B51 plan to kind of create an affirmative defense against allegations of insider trading. So the idea behind these plans is you enter into this plan, you put specific instructions for trading uh, when you're not in possession of material non-public information, and then the trades just happen automatically based on these preset instructions and parameters. And I'm really paraphrasing there, but um, the challenge with 10B51 is that it was implemented a couple decades ago and without a lot of, well, it has had no adjustments, um, but it also didn't 
quite come with maybe all of the parameters that would have really made it a robust way of creating that affirmative defense and really helping insiders navigate material non-public information um, and their trades. So now the SEC has come out with proposed modifications to Rule 10b-51, and I am half full on most of these. So we cannot get into all of the proposed changes in the podcast today because there's just a lot of them and there's a lot of nuances, but Barb did write a blog about this back in December of 2021. So definitely go check that out um, for all of the details. But so there's some big parameters there that I think will be beneficial. There's things like a cooling off period. So putting distance between the time that you adopt your plan and when trades actually start to happen under the plan. And the SEC is proposing four months. I think there's some mixed opinions about the actual nuances of like, is four months too long? Is it too short? I, I think it's probably on the longer end personally, but I'm not really super hypercritical over that. I think it's a cooling off period is good. Um, there's other things included like even section 16 reporting. This one seems so basic to me and yet it hasn't existed up until now is that, you know, you see in the media, oh, such and such insider sold their stock, right? Timed around this announcement. And then, you know, you're not really sure whether that insider had a 10B51 plan or not because it's not, required to disclose that anywhere up until this point. And so some of the proposed changes include with section 16 reporting, adding a mandatory checkbox to forms four and five that will allow the preparer to indicate when those trades um, were executed under a 10B51 plan. So that adds a lot of clarity to what's going on with these insider transactions and whether there is they were made pursuant to a 10B51 plan or not. So I think just some of the clarity um, that will come out around that will be very helpful to really, you know, not just making things clear, but dispelling a lot of the perception out there about what's happening around the timing of some of these trades. Um, gosh, there's so many other parts to this. Um, no overlapping plans is another big one. So right now uh, there was no restriction on you know, an insider could go adopt a plan today. And then, you know, two months from now, adopt another 10B51 plan that overlaps with the current one. And then they could do another one and another one. There was really no limitation on any of that. And so the new rules do provide for no overlapping plans, which I personally feel, um, even though it seems a bit restrictive, I feel that it probably goes a long way to really mitigating against trading on non material non-public information, because if you could just be, keep making more and more plans, um, it just seems like that kind of defeats the purpose of, um, of 10B51. So there's a lot more, but overall I'll say, I'm, I think it's long overdue for the SEC to come up with some parameters to really fix some of the loopholes that existed under rule 10B51. I think we could debate a lot about the nuances of how some of these things are being proposed, but overall, I think that the changes are, are good and will add more clarity around the plans and their related disclosures and um, create some, some framework that probably should have been done years ago. So I'm half full. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Jen. I think that this is an area where we've needed some additional clarification on how these plans are supposed to work. And the original Rule 10B51 is, is so broad and gives gives so much leeway to individuals who are setting up these plans in terms of how the plans are set up. 
that I do think that it, that it becomes an obstacle to the SEC potentially enforcing uh, insider trading rules. And, uh, and you know, one, one criticism noted in the SEC's proposing release of overlapping plans is that you could have executives who, who set up multiple overlapping plans with trades all occurring around a certain point in time that might be sort of tied to when they expect some news to be announced. And then as they get closer to that point in time and it becomes clear what the news is gonna be, they cancel the trades that they don't want to execute. And then they allow the trades, the, the uh, plans to go forward that they do want to execute. And in the end, it really sort of violates the whole spirit of rule 10B51 because uh, the, in, the executives aren't actually making a decision in advance to trade. They are setting up all these potential plans and then choosing which ones they want to have execute. And, uh, and so that I think is one of the main reasons why they want to disallow the overlapping plans. And I, I think they're right. I think that there is a lot of potential for abuse there right now. So. Yes, definitely agree. All right. Well, I think we've hit on the four half full, half empty topics that we wanted to cover today. It looks like we've got two and two, two half full, two half empty. And I think this was fun. So I, yeah, I, I had I, fun. I hope the audience, I hope it's fun for the audience to listen to. Hopefully it's fun. And we learned a few things and uh, we'll, we'll continue to explore other ideas where we can come up with some half full, half empty conversation around what's happening in equity compensation. And Barb, I want to thank you for joining me today. This was a great start to the new year. Thanks for having me. And with that, we will see everybody on the next podcast.